0: 28 to 36 shows Jesus on a mountaintop, revealing His glory to Peter, James, and John. The passage that we're focusing in on tonight, the remainder of chapter 9 from verse 37 onward, stands in stark contrast to the previous section. In the first half of Luke 9, Jesus... proclaims the coming kingdom of God. Jesus is revealed to be the Messiah or the Christ. Jesus raises the bar quite high for prospective disciples, telling them that they must deny themselves and take up their crosses daily in order to follow Him. If they're to benefit from His work as the Christ or the Messiah, they also must bear a cross. Jesus sets a high standard, painting an impressive ideal picture. Almost of a spiritual giant who would follow Him, taking no thought for Himself. Lay down everything for the glory of the Savior. In the last half of Luke chapter 9, the disciples fail to meet the standard. That Jesus set in the first half of Luke 9. They don't exemplify this cross-bearing, forsaking everything, sacrificial discipleship. They are not spiritual giants. This is contrast. Jesus, in the first half of Luke 9 is revealed to be the glorious fulfillment of the expectations of the Old Testament people of God. He satisfies the anticipation of the entire Old Testament canon. He is the Christ of God, as verse 20 says. Jesus is the King of the kingdom, who empowers His disciples to heal And to cast out demons. This is in the first few verses of chapter 9. Jesus is the king of the kingdom who provides for his people with the miracle working power of his will. Feeding the 5,000. Jesus is purposefully and patiently carrying out each stage of his eternal plan of redemption as he makes his way to the cross. Revealing his glory, predicting the coming cross. This is the first half of Luke 9. He sets the bar high for disciples. If you want to benefit from my Messiahship, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you need to give up everything. Take up your cross, which was an instrument of execution. Consider yourself dead to the world and follow me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. This is what Jesus teaches. This is what the first half of Luke 9 puts before us. This glorious Savior, this glorious Messiah, and the call, the radical call to follow Him. But in the last half of Luke 9, we see the inglorious disciples bumbling along in failure after failure. They cannot cast out demons. They don't understand Jesus. They get their priorities confused. Contrast. The outline of tonight's sermon is really quite simple. Each of the small units of narrative that together make up the last half of Luke 9. Each of those small units of narrative show us one aspect in which the disciples of Jesus are lacking. In verses 37 to 43 we see that the disciples lack faith. In 43 to 45, we see that the disciples lack understanding. In 46 to 48, we see that the disciples lack humility. In 49 and 50, we see that the disciples lack perspective. In 51 to 55, we see that the disciples lack awareness of context. In 57 to 62, we see that would-be disciples of Jesus lack commitment. We're going to work through each of these deficiencies one by one and see that in view of their shortcomings, the disciples aren't heroes. And then after exploring the idea that the disciples are failures in every category, we're going to see Jesus' grace in saving them anyway, and in commissioning them to work in His kingdom anyway. The big idea of tonight's message is this. Jesus loves failures. I believe that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intentionally included these stories of the disciples' failings immediately after Jesus' glory was revealed in the Transfiguration in order to contrast the excellency of Jesus with the substandard performance of the disciples. This contrast drives home a fundamental gospel truth that we see all throughout Scripture. Salvation is not granted to us on the basis of our merit. We don't deserve it. In fact, salvation comes to us despite the fact that we deserve the very opposite of the salvation given to us. We deserve condemnation. The contrast here in Luke 9 between Jesus' glory and the failure of His disciples drives home the point that Jesus does not love and save people because we are good. Jesus loves and saves people despite the fact that we are failures. Jesus loves failures. So with that statement in mind, let's begin. In verses 37 to 43, we see that the disciples lacked faith. Jesus comes down from what was doubtless a refreshing spiritual experience with his father and with his perfectly sanctified friends, Moses and Elijah. We see in verse 41 Jesus saying, how long am I to be with you and bear with you when he comes down from the mountain? Jesus was exasperated with Life in this sinful world. No doubt to get up there on the mountaintop. To be with his father. To be with Moses and Elijah who are not any longer struggling with sin. To enjoy some fellowship up there on the top of that mountain was doubtless a refreshing experience. And Jesus comes down from the mountain right into a frustrating controversy. Luke doesn't record what I'm about to say, but the parallel account in Mark tells us that the scribes were arguing with the disciples that Jesus left at the bottom of the mountain. That's in Mark 9, 14. Jesus had taken only Peter, James, and John with him, which means that there were nine left at the bottom of the mountain. And it seems that they had gotten into an argument with the scribes. This controversy in itself must have been frustrating. For Jesus coming down from the fellowship that he experienced with his father and with Moses and Elijah back into the fray of imperfect life below. And in the midst of the fray, a man comes to Jesus and begs Jesus to look at his son who is demon possessed. He says in verse 40 that he had already asked the nine disciples to cast out the demon, but they couldn't do it. Jesus responds with frustration. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Who's Jesus frustrated with? Perhaps he's frustrated with the father of the child. There may be some truth to that hypothesis, but the very fact that the man brought his son to Jesus shows at least some faith. And some faith is all that Jesus ever requires more likely Jesus was frustrated with his disciples who lacked the faith to cast out this demon in mark 9 which i already mentioned and in matthew 17 jesus says that his disciples could not cast out his demon cast out this demon pardon me because they didn't have faith these guys had been at the beginning of the chapter casting out demons left right and center what happened then Most likely, the disciples had become overconfident in their own ability to cast out demons, to win spiritual victories. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 1, we read that Jesus gave them power and authority over demons. That means that it was Jesus' power all along that made their ministry effective. Most likely the disciples had grown accustomed to seeing demons obey their commands and became overconfident in their own ability. As if it was their own power that made their ministry effective. This goes along with what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark. This kind of demon can only come out by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting demonstrate faith in God. Lack of prayer and fasting demonstrates faith in ourselves. The disciples who did not pray and fast were failures who didn't pray and fast, thinking that they had it in themselves to win spiritual victories. But before we become too critical of the disciples, let me ask you a question. Aren't we failures just like them? Are you characterized by prayer and fasting? By faith in God? Manifest faith in God? Do you fall on your face regularly and beg God to save your family members, your friends, your coworkers, those in your sphere of influence? Do you immediately respond with prayer and fasting when you see someone in spiritual bondage needing to get free? Is that what you do? You just respond with prayer and fasting? Do you know that you are powerless in and of yourself to do anything, anything about anyone else's spiritual condition? And so you are characterized by prayer and fasting? Anything less than a lifestyle of unceasing prayer is a demonstration of our unfaithfulness, our lack of faithlessness, our lack of faith, pardon me, faithlessness. Anything less than regular, consistent, persistent petition to God for spiritual victory in our lives and in the lives of others is simply a functional Underestimation of the power of God and an overestimation in our own power. The disciples lacked faith. Frankly, so do we. In verses 43 to 45, we see that the disciples also lacked understanding. There were things the disciples didn't know. Big things. Those Jesus had plainly Jesus had plainly told them that he was going to the cross, but they couldn't comprehend it. We think to ourselves, how dense could they be? Jesus tells them so clearly exactly what's going to happen, but they don't get it. And yet, when we open the scriptures, how dense we often are not to perceive the things that are written here. Is it because God hasn't written a good enough book? you understand? We, like the disciples, are sorely lacking in understanding. The state of the disciples was a state of spiritual ignorance. And we are all too often spiritually ignorant, like the disciples to some extent. See, it says in verse 45 that it was concealed from them this shows us that apart from the Holy Spirit's revealing work in our lives, we not only fail to perceive the things of God, but we actually cannot perceive the things of God. In and of ourselves, we lack understanding. We're not spiritually perceptive beings. We are blind and imperceptive creatures, unable to grasp anything that's not supernaturally revealed to us. Romans 1.18 says that in our natural state, we human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 4.7 asks rhetorically, what do you have that you did not receive? If we know anything true about God, it's because He's opened our deaf ears and opened our blind eyes. We are, apart from the Holy Spirit's work, dull and imperceptive beings. As a human race, what a bunch of failures we yeah. are. We lack faith. We lack understanding. Verses 46 to 48, we see that the disciples lack humility. Okay. Immediately after failing to cast out a demon. And failing to understand the spiritual truths that Jesus was talking to them about in verses 44 and 45, the disciples begin to have an argument amongst themselves about which one of them is the greatest. <laughs> Do you catch the irony here? These failures were boasting about their greatness. If that's not pride, which is an inflated view of yourself, I don't know what it is. These guys were thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. They failed to cast out a demon. They failed to understand what Jesus says. And then they turn around and argue with them, amongst themselves about who's the greatest. But are we any different? Before coming to Christ, we jockey for position in the rat race. Boasting of perhaps our intelligence or our wealth or our good looks or, or whatever it is. And I'd like to say that it's a different story after coming to Christ. But all too often, we see Christians doing a similar thing. The things we brag about may change. But all too often, the bragging doesn't stop. We boast now about our good doctrine. We boast now about our Christ-likeness. We boast now about our evangelistic zeal. We boast now about our commitment to the church. And so on and so forth. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. What right have we to break? about anything who have been saved by grace none and yet we do it we're just like the disciples in and of ourselves spiritually inept people who ought not to boast at all whatever we have we've been given and yet we find ourselves jockeying for position in God's family amongst All the others who are likewise saved by grace. So the disciples 2,000 years ago and the disciples now lack faith, understanding, humility. In verses 49 and 50 we see that the disciples lack perspective. And the type of perspective I'm talking about here is a sense of proportion. If someone were to look at a live microscopic piece of bacteria through a high-powered microscope, it would appear to be many times bigger than it actually is. And therefore, since it is merely an appearance of being many times bigger than it actually is, if a person, after seeing a magnified image of a microscopic organism freaked out and claimed that the world was being invaded by huge creepy looking organisms that would be ludicrous likewise it would be silly for us it is silly for us to blow things out of proportion to make a bigger deal out of things than is warranted look at verses 49 and 50 the disciples are upset that someone is casting out demons. Simply because they aren't part of their tightly knit group. Perspective is called for. Jesus tells them whoever is not against you is for you. In other words, don't make a big deal of the fact that this guy is not one of your group. Simply rejoice that demons are being cast out. Rejoice that the kingdom of God is advancing. We find a similar principle outlined in Philippians 1, 15-18. Paul, writing from prison, says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The point that both Jesus and Paul want us to understand is that agreement on primary things is weightier than difference on secondary things. This is not saying that differences don't matter, or that secondary things are unimportant. This is simply saying that we should put things in perspective. Does your Christian friend from another church have some misguided or erroneous beliefs about this or that? Then talk to him about it. Reason with him from the scripture and seek to persuade, but at the same time put it in perspective. If he loves Jesus and clings to the cross for salvation, then stand together with him in Christian unity. Rejoice in what he has right, even as you seek to confront him about what he has wrong. It's all too easy for us to write people off about secondary things, rather than standing in solidarity with them on the central point of Christ crucified for sinners. We, like the disciples, all too often seek to prevent the ministry of men and women who have first things right and second things wrong. All too often we are disturbed because ministry is happening by someone who's not in our group. We, like the disciples, often lack perspective. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that God's servants are to rightly handle the word of truth. And the King James Version says that we should rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth involves rightly proportioning the word of truth. We ought not to make microorganisms look like freakishly large space invaders. And we ought not to make elephants look like tadpoles. We should be big on the things that the Bible is big on. And small on the things that the Bible is small on. In other words, we should major on majors. And we should minor on minors. So the disciples lack faith, understanding, humility, and perspective. And all too often, so do we. In verses 51 to 55, we see that the disciples lack an awareness of their context, or their time, their stage, in God's redemptive plan. After the Samaritan village rejects Jesus, the disciples want to call down fire from heaven to consume them. In verse 54... People scoff at that. Oh, God is a God of grace. And how ridiculous it was for the disciples to think that they should call down fire from heaven. Well, if you think about it, it actually might not be as bad of a desire as it initially appears. After all, what could be more deserving of judgment than to reject God's Son? John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And there were biblical precedents for raining down fire from heaven upon God's enemies. In Genesis 19, God destroyed Sodom with fire and sulfur from heaven because of their sin. In 2 Kings 1, Elijah calls down fire from heaven upon God's enemies. So the condemnation of the Samaritan village is warranted. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And the Samaritan village certainly had sinned. So, what's wrong with what the disciples asked Jesus? It's not as if they didn't deserve to have fire rain down from heaven upon them. Why did Jesus rebuke them then? In verse 55. The disciples were lacking in awareness of their context. Their, their place in the unfolding of redemptive history. They were unaware of where they fit in to God's purposes for the human race in their time and place. In Genesis and in Second Kings, God was primarily revealing His justice. Grace was there, to be sure. But in order to make sure that humans understood our hopelessness and guilt before him God emphasized his justice early on in redemptive history in the way that he related to the human race at that time choosing first just a family from the nations of the earth and leaving everyone else in darkness condemning the nations surrounding this family Leaving the nations in blindness. Eventually choosing a whole nation, but one nation. And as we read earlier from Deuteronomy, a small nation. And leaving the rest in darkness. And commanding war against these pagan nations. And their extermination at times and places. God was revealing His justice. He didn't do anything wrong in all of the severe destruction of the Old Testament. You understand that? Nobody died under God's judgment who didn't deserve to die under God's judgment. With the arrival of Jesus, the emphasis has changed. God is as just now as He's ever been. It's not a matter that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and the God of the New Testament isn't. The God of the Old Testament is just and the God of the New Testament isn't. God is as just now as He's ever been. God is as wrathful now, tonight, towards sin as He has ever been. But the light of His grace is shining more brightly now through His Son than it has ever been in human history. And God is exercising more restraint now in this new covenant era. Than he ever had previously God is emphasizing at this time and place ever since his son was born in Bethlehem his grace toward humans second Peter 3 and verse 9 says that God is now being patient towards us humans not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance first Timothy 2: 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, John 3.18 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Judgment is coming. To be sure. Condemnation is coming. But the disciples, like us, lived after the birth of God's Son into this present In this present season where God is exercising patience and leaving ample room for repentance. To be too quick to pull the trigger on God's enemies at this stage of redemptive history would be to miss what God is doing right now. Exercising patience and forbearance with those who rightly deserve to have fire rain down from heaven upon them. Leaving room for people to repent, to find grace. Incidentally, this is why Paul urges us in Romans 12 not to take vengeance on our enemies. He says, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. We proclaim it. But now is not the time for us to exercise it. We should be patient and gracious towards God's enemies at this place and in this time. As God is being towards His enemies in this place and time. We should hope and pray that they would reach repentance rather than perish. As Jesus said earlier in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. The disciples lacked an awareness of their context. In redemptive history. And we all too often lack the same awareness. Every time that we respond with hate and vengeance toward those who hate God. When that's our initial reaction. We too are lacking awareness of our context in redemptive history. So the disciples are lacking faith, understanding, humility, perspective and awareness of context. Finally, let's look at verses 57-62, to where we see that the would-be disciples of Jesus lack ability. In addition to all of the aforementioned failures, this is perhaps the pinnacle failure of all would-be disciples of Christ. We lack the ability to follow Him. Jesus commanded Luke 9-23 to deny ourselves take up our crosses daily and follow Him, is more radical than we are capable of left to ourselves. The first would-be disciple comes to Jesus with good intentions. I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 57. Jesus' response in verse 58 could be paraphrased. No, you won't. Jesus' response reveals the man's underestimation of what discipleship will require. The second man responds to Jesus' call with a request to delay a commitment to discipleship. Contrary to what we might assume at first glance, this guy's not merely asking Jesus that he might attend his father's funeral. If the father had died already, the man wouldn't be in Jesus' presence. He'd be with his family, abiding by the norms of his Jewish culture, and he would be home there, not following along in the crowd with Jesus. This man is asking to wait until his father passed away. Which could be weeks or months if his father was already sick. Or could be years from now. He's saying, yes, I'll follow you. As soon as... The third person wants to follow Jesus, but his interests are divided. He wants to follow Jesus, but he doesn't have undivided resolve to do this. He can't leave everything behind to follow Jesus. First let me go say farewell to those at my home. He's not willing to go if he can't go say goodbye. You understand, sometimes we need to just be ready to leave everything behind and go follow Jesus. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, anyone who tries to follow Jesus while looking back on what he left behind will furrow a crooked line in the field. Just like you can't cut a straight line in your lawn with your lawnmower without fixing your eye on a point straight ahead of you. We could say that we're better than these would-be followers, but take a quick look at our track record. Have you ever failed to follow Jesus into discomfort? Have you ever delayed obedience? I'll obey as soon as, once certain circumstances are in place, that's when I'm really going to get serious about my faith. Have you ever looked back at what you left behind? These are not failures unique to these three individuals. They're failures common to all who attempt to follow Jesus. Jesus says that we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow Him. We're certainly not able to do this in our natural state, but even as regenerate people, we're still not able to do this as we ought. We haven't done it, we cannot do it perfectly. Surely there are instances where we have done it. There are some examples we can point to in the history of our lives where we have done it. But we haven't utterly abandoned ourselves to the cause of Christ day in and day out the way that we should have. We're not totally dead to ourselves. We're not unwavering disciples. Even the best disciples among us can look back at times that they've chosen a warm bed over the cause of Christ over getting up to commune with Him prior to the other activities of the day. They can look back and see many times that they've delayed in obedience. They can look back and see that they've plowed many crooked lines in the field of God's harvest. These three would-be followers of Jesus are failures who lack the ability to follow Christ. And so are we. The second half of Luke 9 drives home the point the disciples are failures and if we're honest we know that we are failures too This week I've been thinking some about my failures as a Christian my failures as a pastor and all too often I lack faith humility perspective context and ability In many ways I am a failure In many ways, you are a failure too. We can see in ourselves the same flaws that we see in Jesus' disciples in Luke 9. We lack faith. We lack understanding. We lack humility. We lack perspective. We lack awareness of context. And we lack the ability to follow Jesus the way we should. We are failures. But look at what Jesus does for failures. In this passage. And this is where it gets good. Look at verse 51. Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. Saying that He set His face is an idiom, meaning that He resolved to go to Jerusalem. You know why He resolved to go to Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Because, as he said, said earlier in the chapter in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. That was what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 44. Knowing that that was what he was going to Jerusalem for, To do the work of the Messiah. To do the work of the Christ, which was to be killed and on the third day be raised for the salvation of sinners. That's what Jesus was going to Jerusalem to do. And in the midst of this litany of failures by His disciples, at that time, verse 51, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. Right in the middle of his disciples' insufficiency, at a low point in their performance, Jesus resolutely determines to go to Jerusalem for them. Sinners lacking faith, understanding, humility, perspective, context and ability need a savior, and Jesus steps up to the plate. Left to ourselves, we would fumble around in the darkness, not knowing what we're even supposed to be looking for. Left to ourselves, we would be headed for certain death, physical and spiritual. We need rescue, and Jesus resolved, in verse 51, here in this passage, to rescue us. 1 John 2 and verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. This means that Jesus suffered the punishment that we, for our shortcomings, for our failures, deserved. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem He would be betrayed, falsely accused, tried unfairly, mocked, tortured, stripped naked, and hung on a cross for the disciples. Who lacked faith, understanding, humility, perspective, context, and ability? Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to do for those failures and for us failures what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus loves failures. And Jesus did more than that. In spite of all the disciples' deficiencies, Jesus commissions his disciples to continue engaging in ministry. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1, which is why I read it on the heels of the entirety of chapter 9 earlier in the service. The Lord Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus not only rescues failures from the punishment that we deserve, but Jesus commissions us to work in his kingdom as imperfect servants. He knows we lack faith, understanding, humility, perspective, context, ability. He knows that. But He commissions us to exercise what little faith we have. To put what little knowledge we have to good use. He knows that we lack these things, but He sends us out anyway. He sends us out to try. What an honor. What a privilege. That Jesus chooses to use us in His kingdom. To work through our imperfect efforts. Jesus' salvation and commission of people who are failures highlights the contrast that I mentioned at the beginning. Luke 9 shows the contrast between Jesus' glory and His disciples' insufficiency. Which is as much as saying Luke 9 teaches us about the contrast between Jesus' glory and our own insufficiency. Luke 9 shows us the contrast between Jesus' goodness and our badness. The contrast between Jesus' power and our impotence. Jesus chooses to save failures from the punishment that we deserve, so that the world will see that His goodness, and not ours, is the basis of our salvation. Jesus chooses to commission failures into His service and to work through us and our imperfect efforts so that the world will see that it is His power and not ours that affects change and accomplishes His will. Not only can God shoot a straight arrow with a crooked bow, not only can God draw a straight line with a crooked stick, but He delights to shoot straight arrows with crooked bows and he delights to draw straight lines with crooked sticks so that the world may see his greatness instead of ours so that the world would be impressed with him instead of us Jesus doesn't love us and use us in his kingdom because we're awesome. Jesus loves us and uses us in his kingdom because he's awesome. This passage is immensely encouraging. Not if I stopped halfway after showing us that we're failures just like the disciples. But having gone on to see the way that Jesus Relates to these failures here in Luke 9, what He does for them. This passage is immensely encouraging because it shows us again that salvation is all grace. Jesus didn't save us because we deserve it. He saves us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And Jesus doesn't choose to use us in His kingdom because we're so good at doing kingdom work. Jesus uses us in His kingdom in spite of the fact that we lack so many things and so often plow crooked lines. Are you not sure if Jesus could love you? Are you not sure if Jesus could accept you? Do you think your sins are too big? Join the club of sinners saved by grace trust in Jesus for the salvation from the punishment that you deserve if you will trust Jesus today you can read the words of Luke 9:51 as applying directly to you Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem believer for you for you Trust in Him and know that all the sins you have ever committed or ever will commit have been nailed to the cross. Dead and gone. Never to be seen again. Jesus will save you in spite of your sin. Highlighting the contrast between your sin and His grace in order to show how great He is. Or maybe you're already... A believer but you wonder how much use you are to God can he really use a bumbling failure like you someone as sinful as you you know that you don't have enough faith you know that you don't have enough understanding you know that you lack in all the same ways as these disciples did when you hear Jesus say deny yourself take up your cross daily and follow me You know that you haven't lived up to it. You know that despite your best efforts, you cannot do it the way you ought to. But take heart. Jesus calls and commissions imperfect people. He doesn't wait until we're perfect to use us in His kingdom. He uses us and works in us and through us in spite of our limitations in order to contrast His power with our impotence. So that the world can see how great He is. When people like us get saved, and when kingdom work gets done through people like us, the takeaway lesson for the watching world is this. God must have done it. So God delights to save and to commission impotent spiritual failures like us in order to display His glory. Jesus loves failures. He loves failures like the disciples whom we read about in Scripture. He loves failures like me and He loves failures like you. Embrace the fact that He has called you just as you are. Don't wait until you're worthy to answer the call of Christ to begin to follow Him. Don't wait until you're worthy to get busy with kingdom work. Know that it is God's plan from eternity past to love, to save, to transform, and to commission, and to empower failures like us in His service. God desires the contrast between our glory and His. Rejoice in the glory of God in saving sinners like us. And then use your measly little arms to take up your cross as best as you can and try to follow Him. Stumble along behind the plow, furrowing as straight lines as you possibly can. Know that God is pleased To work in you and through you this way. Highlighting the contrast between us as imperfect people. And our perfect God. Our lives ought to read a lot like Luke chapter 9. God is great and we are not. But he loves us anyway. In and through Christ Jesus. Jesus loves failures.